Can your investment portfolio better reflect the things you value and less of those things that you don't? You bet it can, and it should, says one social entrepreneur who claims that socially responsible investing is not only an ethical choice, it can be a financially sound one, too. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change Magazine. On today's episode, we speak with Tim Nash, otherwise known as the Sustainable Economist and founder of Good Investing, a company that offers investment coaching services for do-it-yourself sustainable investors. We talk about the growing movement towards green investing, the impact of divestment initiatives, power of legislative policies, and the steps that you can take to ensure your portfolio is a conscious and deliberate reflection of your values. I grew up in London, Ontario with my dad in the investment industry. Yeah. Uh, I studied economics and philosophy, so I was kind of the weirdo in each of those from my undergrad. Um, and I, uh, really, a turning point for me was in my third year, I got accepted to do an exchange to New Zealand. Now, my intention was to go there and party and play rugby there and hitchhike around New Zealand. Um, and a few things happened that changed the course of my life. Uh, the biggest was that I took a course in something called triple bottom line economics, which is this idea of people, planet, and profit. And, you know, I'd always, in my economic courses, it had always been sort of, I had issues with the models that I was being taught. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but the philosopher inside of me was like, wait a minute, something's missing here. And it wasn't until I learned this language around human capital, social capital, and natural capital that really the light bulbs went off inside my head. And I started to realize that, okay, this is, this is what's missing. This, and I had a language where I could properly articulate what was missing from the economic models. Um, as well, I had a profound spiritual experience while I was there. I won't go too deep into it. But uh, I met a 2,500-year-old tree that taught me how badly we're messing up the planet. And it was really, it was kind of one of these eye-opening experiences where, you know, not expecting it, but that it had always been this intellectual exercise of like, well, wait a minute, now that I understand this, we're cutting down trees faster than they're growing back. Like, that's a problem. We're harvesting fish faster than they're reproducing. That's a problem. But now, for the first time, it was like, ah, it was like the empathy switch got turned on inside of me. It was like, whoa, like it hit me right in the heart, like, I need to do something about this. And I went to Sweden and I did my master's in sustainability. Okay. And that's where I learned sort of the formal framework, this basic biology, chemistry, physics. I took a course called Engineering for a Sustainable Society about all these different green technologies. And for my thesis, I looked at this idea of socially responsible investment. Right. And as soon as we brought up the words ethical, responsible, sustainable, people automatically assumed lower financial returns. Yes. Like right off the bat. Yes. It was fascinating that as soon as I brought it up and the reaction I got was like people were like sort of patting me on my head, very condescending, like, <laughs> oh, that's cute. Like you want to <laughs> save the world. Right. Well, I'm in this to make money. Now, everything I was learning in Sweden is that there is a business case for sustainability. Right. And that was very clear. And people didn't seem to get that. And so my thesis was all about strengthening this link between sustainability and profitability. And I want to be clear that you don't have to sacrifice financial returns. I, that's yeah. exactly the question I was going to get to next. So, yeah. so you're, you're, you're already getting there. It's People make the assumption 
Um, and you can tell me, yeah. you know, is, is it, is it all going to be at a way bigger risk? Are you, if, if you're right. looking at, at this from a sustainable perspective in terms of your portfolio, are we it's at a no bigger risk? Is it just, right. Is it just about ethics or can we talk about, is this a financially sound so decision? It's both. And it's really, you know, and it's, it's tough for me because I, when I talk about it on this sort of heartfelt level, Right. Which is where, frankly, most of my clients like that's where I connect with them. And that's where most people what draws them to this is this idea. And it's absolutely there. Like when you look at the companies inside your portfolio and everyone has different issues. And I want to be clear that I've stopped sort of pushing forward my definition of sustainability, that instead it's about listening to people. And it's like, what does this mean to you? Right. And that, you know, when there are people who are actively campaigning on climate change issues, but they own pipeline stocks and they own oil sands. And like, it's like, wait a minute when, you know, all this talk in the U S right now around gun control. Yes. And I think most of us were just, are just horrified at how sort of normalized gun violence has become. And that you open the portfolio and you have gun manufacturers in there. That was my next question. Yes, go ahead. But like, uh, this is like, yeah, so these yeah. are hard ethical, right? And then uh, from the financial standpoint, this yeah. is the part that I would say is evolving because we're getting more and more data. Yes. Um, and, and that it's really exciting because basically what we're seeing is that there is no sacrifice to financial performance. Now that when you exclude those, what I'm going to call sort of evil companies, and again, there are different measures and different definitions of what those evil companies are. Having said that, let's say we use your definition and and, and how you approach it. You can honestly say um, definitively that it's not just an ethical decision, that it's actually financially sound decision on your part. um, And it's 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 a good financial decision choice and obviously the devil is in the details right Right. this is what i help clients with and it's really easy we saw a lot of people get burned during the crash because for a lot of people ethical investing means renewable energy right and renewable energy got killed it got nailed during the crash like people lost a lot of money and you know a lot of those companies went bankrupt and like didn't come back so you want to be smart about how you're doing it so what i can say definitively is that when it comes to the standard socially responsible screens, mm-hmm. which here in Canada, it was started by the Mennonite community. Yeah. So these are often referred to by as sin stocks, right? When you get rid of, of tobacco and nuclear and military weapons and uh, 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 gambling and pornography are also included as part of that de- definition. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll do just as well. And history has shown over the last five years, if not a little bit better. And the traditional investments. And there's a chart that I show people all the time. And what I do is I compare the TSX 60, which is the 60 largest companies in Canada. And that's the standard index that we use. And I compare it to something called the Jancy Social Index, which uses this sustainability screen, right? They get rid of the, the sort of those sin stocks. And they also rank every company on a sustainability score. And they get rid of the bottom 20%. Right. So it's not squeaky clean. It's still got oil sands in there. Mm-hmm. Suncor is considered the most sustainable, you know, the most socially responsible one. So it's in there front and center. It's got a lot of banks in there. Right. But what it does is it gets rid of the worst companies from each sector. And it's actually done a little bit better than the TSX 60. But if you if you chart them like they just go so strongly together, there's such a high degree of correlation mm-hmm. that you're not sacrificing certainly 
And then the argument that I make is that if we look forward, if we look at the next 10, 20, 30 years, well, we're going to have more government regulation. We've got carbon pricing, right? More stringent regulations around these things. And also this generational shift, right? That, that people more and more are willing to pay a premium for organic, fair trade, naturally sourced products. And that we want to support those companies. And we're seeing it as consumers. We want to buy that stuff. As employees, people coming out of business school want to work for those companies, right? Yeah. And that I think it's only a matter of time before the stock market starts to reflect this. It's a little behind the curve. It's still dominated by the old guard. There's still the generational shift is much slower in the investment community. Of course. Right? Um, but that over time, we're going to see more and more clients that want to invest in companies that are aligned with those values. And in that scenario, if I'm right with those three assumptions, then absolutely over longer term horizon, this absolutely makes sense from a sheerly financial perspective. And when I look at the stats, the surveys that are out there, there's a huge interest in responsible investments. Uh, Desjardins did a study and I think it found like it was something like, uh, uh, you know, 50% of Canadians right off the bat are interested in this. If you qualify it by saying you don't have to sacrifice returns, then that number goes up to like 70%. They're right. like, oh, right? Yeah, it's a no brainer. Um, but when I look at the assets under management of these responsible funds in Canada, it's less than 1%. Interesting. Because you also see, sorry, did I cut you off? You were going to say. No, something? not at all. Because uh, you see some, like in the States, for example, the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller, yeah. City of San Francisco, I mean, all these different, right? They have taken major steps towards divestment um, yeah. and, you know, other things. And so do is are do you still see that as a trend or do you see it more in the Absolutely. U.S.? And do you see that it's, here too? It's, so Europe is kicking everyone's ass. Okay. Right. Like they're just so far ahead of the curve on this. Yeah. Right. That it's just like standard practice. You look at the Norwegian pension fund. That's and true. It's just like a no brainer. Like yeah. they get it. Um, you know, the U.S. is now really catching on to this. Absolutely. Uh, Canada is a laggard. Okay. You know, that, that really. And, and I have my ideas as to why that is. And um, I think that so much of it comes down to the fact that the old system has served us well for a very long time. They don't see any reason to change. To change. Um, if and if I looked at the the United States again, though, as as an example, um, I'm just curious what you think. You, we mentioned this. You sort of touched upon it. Um, that whole divestment movement from from fossil fuels, but now with yeah. this whole uh, Parkland and other situations yeah. in terms of guns, do you think yeah. do you think that's going to inspire more yeah. divestment I, and more more you know very ethical type of uh, totally. check of what they're I'm doing? I'm so inspired by those kids. Like the way that they, they're reacting to this is just incredible, and their mastery of social media and on building an online campaign is just oof. I'm in awe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I haven't heard so. I've heard a lot about uh, uh, the gun manufacturers and about the companies that are supporting them. Right. So, like Mac Mountain Equipment Co-op, there was a big issue here. I've heard less and le like sadly less about the investment piece. I have heard some stuff. So there is some encouraging and a lot of it is the big investors. So like BlackRock, which owns iShares, which is like one of the most popular ETF companies in the world. Yeah. Like they are doing. And when I, it's so encouraging when I, I show clients, I look at iShares funds right now, they have a banner at the top that is like, here is our statement on, you know, gun manufacturers. And it's just like, whoa, like they get it. 
Um, I think that it still, yeah, that it certainly helps. And these issues, as tragic as they are, absolutely serve as, I think it's like an impetus for people to look at, uh, at what's inside their portfolio, look at what they're buying, look at what they're investing in, and to make more conscious, deliberate, informed decisions. Um, and sadly, this is, I think, humans, you know, the way we often react is that things need to get worse mm. before we acknowledge that there's a problem. If it's not front of mind, if it's not happening to us directly, to us and our families, we don't, you know, we don't always hear it. And so, you know, what's happened is that that's, that gun issue affected that school and it affected those kids in a way that meant that they had to act. And that now they're looking for every possible sort of lever of change. And certainly government is a powerful lever. And certainly consumerism is a powerful lever. But I would argue that long term, looking at these as economic issues, that the investment lever is, is you know, I would argue the most powerful one. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's so, why I was yeah, wondering that. Yeah. So, and I hear a lot of this, like, you know, this versus this, like, should we do the, the purchase boycott versus divestment? And for me, it's like, yes, and like, it's, we need to be doing all of this. And, you know, and for me, it's like, it's part of it is what you can affect. You know, if you shop at Mech, you can affect Mech. You're a member, you can do that. Um, a lot of people don't have investments, right? And if you don't have investments, if you're not making enough money that you can save for your retirement, like, this isn't the, the lever that you right. should be. On. Right. But if you come from a privileged situation or, you know, if you've done well for yourself and you do have investments, then this is a really powerful way uh, to be able to start to change our economy. Agreed. And so where would you think we are right now in terms of the trend? Uh, oh, are, yeah. Where are we? Honestly, I've been waiting for this for so long. Like I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. Yeah. It was 10 years ago that I was writing my thesis on this. And if you had asked me then, where would we be in a decade? Oh, my goodness. I thought we'd be so much further than we are right now. Mm. Right? Like, of course, climate change, like, we're going to acknowledge this. We're going to be working on solutions. Like, yeah, of course. Right? When it comes to income inequality, like, of course, we recognize this is a huge problem. We're going to have, you know, sort of supports in place. Um, but uh, the systems that we have right now, whether it's government you know, businesses tend to be a little more adaptable and tend to be faster, but they're driven by, you know, sort of government regulation, consumer demand. And it's just been so slow The the analogy I use is that a tidal wave is coming. I have no doubt that there will be a time in my lifetime where sustainable investing is the norm, where this is the default way to do it. Of course, it's just the most logical thing ever. Um, but I would, I'm, I'm patient and, and, you know, and, and part of it is that I've learned how long it can take. So, you know, if I look at the next 10 years, I think we'll make a, a, more progress in the, in the next 10 years than we did in the last 10 years. There are more products, there are more options. You know, the people that are keen on this are like making more money than they were 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, but I would, I would say that we're still like in terms of it being normalized and mainstream, like, you know, I look at this from like a 20 to 30 year horizon, but I would argue that our political systems are not helping us right now. Um, I would probably agree with you. And I, I, uh, I, I, the reason I was bringing it up also is because you started this new company, Good Investing. And yeah. you recently had a, an event where you brought people together who... Yeah, I had a fair. And tell me, so tell us what inspired you to start that. And I would imagine it's because cool. there's a movement towards this. Yeah. 
Um, and tell me about it. the fair too. So, so really, so, and this speaks to my change theory, right? And so my change theory is that I'm taking a hearts and minds approach to this. I'm going super grassroots. Um, you know, my first audacious goal was to shift a billion dollars towards sustainability, right? I realized that a billion dollars, it's a drop in the bucket. Like it's just not. And the issue isn't money. It's psychology. The biggest barrier is this belief, this unfounded belief that you have to give something up. And so uh, I created the Good Investment Fair uh, as a way for people to be able to practically learn about these issues. And I did it in a way so the the uh, basically it's like a farmer's market for community bonds. Right. So people would come in. It was like, you know, a whole day. It was like 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. So seven, uh, seven hours. People come in. As they come in, I hand them fake money, right? So everyone gets like $5 million, and I'm using air quotes here. It's not real money, but you get like $5 million bills. Yes. And I had nine tables around the room, different organizations, and they all had an impact investment offering, right? So something that pays a financial return and has a positive social environmental impact. And, um, and it, they all had to be available to retail investors because for a long time, this stuff was only available to the hyper rich, this idea of accredited investors. Right. And I can't tell you how disheartening it is to like find this like affordable housing investment. I really want to, I'm passionate about that issue. I want to do something about it. I'm ready to invest. And it's like, the question is, do you have $2 million in the bank? Right. <laughs> it's just like, it's true. Yeah. So that these were all retail products and so that people could go around and they would learn about them and it was experiential and they would get them to meet all the different people that are involved with them. And the fake money is so fun, much fun. It's a great icebreaker because it gives people a role and it allows you to say, okay, if I'm investing a million dollars, like what is my return? How does that work? And it kind of gives it that practical element. Um, and then, you know, but I think there's also a behavioral piece there, which is that if people are, you know, if people hand over a million dollars of fake money, I think they're much, they're sort of psychologically primed and they're much more likely to hand over a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars of real money. So my change theory now is is that I want to help one million Canadians invest intentionally. And if I can get a million Canadians being deliberate about how they're investing their money, earning the same financial returns, if not a little bit better, and feeling good about it, right, then that's when I think we hit sort of that psychological tipping point where that then this becomes the default way to invest, do it in line with my values, that I'm going to be intentional about looking at what's inside, deciding where I draw the line from a sustainability standpoint, investing, you know, most of my money in really traditional funds, really, you know, big uh, uh, companies, right? But things that I don't consider to be evil. And then carving out part of it for things that I feel really good about, that I'm excited for. That's mm -hmm. like, you know, the change I want to see in the world. So maybe investing part of it in organic food or clean technologies or community bonds. So what type of uh, folks were there? What type of products were available? Yeah, so there were a bunch of different organizations that were there. Uh, um, a number of them are renewable energy. So SolarShare was there. Mm -hmm. uh, CED Co-op, which is out of Kitchener-Waterloo. They're another community uh, co-op. Uh, Co-Power, which is a green bond, and they just sold out. So they, the like the day before the fair, they had sold out of their $10 million offering, which is amazing. Nice. Um, there's also groups involved in microfinance, 
which is, um, you know, making micro loans to entrepreneurs in developing countries. Uh, and then for the first time, we had a couple of organizations that were doing something called equity based crowdfunding, which is a really cool concept. Is this is it's, it's a new thing. So have you ever supported a Kickstarter? Yes. Okay, So, you know, about crowdfunding. Yes. You know that the way crowdfunding works for the most part is you give them money and you get a thing. Yeah. You get stuff. You get a perk. Well, equity-based crowdfunding is the same way. It's crowdfunding, except that instead of getting a thing, you get shares in the company. You get a slice of that equity. Nice. Now, there are maximums. They've set it up. I think, you know, for a lot of these companies, the most anyone can invest is about 2500 So the government is really worried. Like, these are super, super high risk. Like, you're investing in startups. Like, this is money that you should absolutely be prepared to lose but you know it gives people like you and i the chance to be able to invest in like these really cool startup technologies if we believe in it so we had uh two organizations one called front funder the other is the social venture exchange the svx mm -hmm. and they both are platforms where these um, you know small businesses can uh, a post and you know hopefully raise a little bit of money from people that believe in their mission it, it would just seem by the amount of people that showed up and by the yeah. organizations and companies that are are doing this kind of thing and offering products in this field yeah. it seems to me that there is a greater movement of sorts absolutely right we have absolutely. something to be hopeful about there's a huge there's growing interest and demand absolutely more people are looking for these products the problem is that, in my mind, the type of person that wants to invest in green or sustainable or ethical investments yeah. doesn't really know anything about finance right. or investing. Right. Like, we're hippies. Right. Right? We're like social justice activists. Like, we're so busy working on our causes right. that this idea of, like, oh, I have to think about my money. <laughs> I have to, like, right? Like, understand. It's, it's just, it's, it's a pain in the butt. So that's why, you know, my business model directly addresses that, which is that it's a coaching service so that I'm not a broker or a money manager. I never touch my client's money. Instead, I'm like a coach or a consultant. And, and you can hire me by the hour, right? No commissions. No conflicts of interest. And really, it's about under helping you figure this stuff out. And for most people, that means like the difference between stocks and bonds, right? That means like the difference between RSP and TFSA, right? Right? Like it's like financial literacy basics. We just, we were never taught this in high school. And then beyond that, for a lot of people, this idea when it comes to investing is daunting. It's scary. And we have a lot of emotions wrapped up with our money around fear, around guilt, around shame like this, you know, and, and the, there are all these emotions. And so that's where the coaching piece comes in, right? Where I help people work through those emotions, acknowledge them, but let's not allow that to paralyze us. Let's work through those emotions. And wow, doesn't it help that like I've done all the research and I know all the different products that are available that so for me it's like having that intentionality and then if you're going to learn about this stuff which is a life skill that everybody should learn about right then by aligning it with your values using it to kind of spark those conversations about what is the future you want to retire in you know when you think if you're saving up for your kids resp what is the job market that you want them to graduate into let's invest in those
you mentioned legislation. I remember when I was originally writing about this type of stuff, I talked about how in Ontario we're one of the reasons we saw the trend as becoming stronger and and more palatable and, and probable was because Ontario was introducing legislation that would sort of help spur it along. Um, now we're kind of seeing them waffle a bit, and 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 in Canada um, also the pipeline situation, whatever. So. Yeah. Um, wondering if you think it's possible that there's going to be steps forward in the sense in the, that that you anticipate or hope for, without the um, legislative uh, backing and without that type right. of support. Right. So my my analogy, the analogy I use for the relationship between the economy and government is that, uh, you know, I, I use a nice sports analogy. So I've been watching the Raptors a lot lately, so I'll use basketball. Right. So to me, it's like the, the role of government is to set the rules. Mm-hmm. They decide on the boundaries. They decide how hoop the, how high the hoop is. They decide the times, the fouls, all that stuff. They pay the refs. Right. And then from there, it's up to the players. It's up to the, the businesses to be as creative as possible within those constraints. Right. Right. And the more creative you are. Right. The more success you can have in our capitalist economy. Right. And now that um, so to me, it's it's that uh, there's absolutely room for creativity for businesses to be able to spur this. And what's, the things that are going to drive them are going to be customer demand. Mm hmm. Right. It's going to be risk aversion. Like if they can lower their risk right. by doing some of these sustainability things, then absolutely those parameters are already there. And if companies can continue to be creative, there's big opportunities there. Um, but that they're always going to be laggards. To me, that government, you know, can be a force for good in this, that by setting rules, by allowing those constraints, I mean, let businesses do what they do. This is why I love cap and trade as a program. Like it drives me nuts. It's the most conservative uh, a solution to climate change, right? Like it's entirely market driven and it's all about putting in a price on carbon. Now, all of a sudden, companies are expected to be creative to find ways to reduce their carbon footprint. And if they do, they're rewarded for that. And that also it spurs innovation because if we can get cool new startup companies to figure out ways to be able to like capture carbon effectively or be able to like, you know, sort of help companies do that, mm-hmm. they now have a separate revenue stream because they are now also creating these carbon credits. It's just, it's, is it possible without government or if government's laggard? Yes, absolutely. There's nothing preventing industry and commerce from doing this, um, you know, and it's largely going to be consumer driven. But the more governments do create those boundaries and those restrictions, uh, the more that we can have progressive policies, that's going to help the economy. What's the advice you would give others uh, when it comes to this type of thing, responsible investing? I think the biggest the biggest impact that anyone can make is to simply ask questions. There's such a big opportunity for people to be able to uh, uh, you know, look after their families and themselves and have the financial future that they want while also contributing to a more sustainable economy. Right. And that, that, but I think that we've been sort of trained to not ask questions, um, to not think about our money and to sort of just go about our day to day, which I totally get. I understand that sort of status quo bias. Um, but if you are passionate about social and environmental issues, I think that now more than ever, you have a duty to look at how you're participating in the economy with your money. And just like most of us have made that those conscious decisions around our consumerism, 
that we should make that same conscious decision around our banking and around our investments. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Beerbaum. Thank you.